We study billionaires, and this is episode 121 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Seoul, South Korea. Today's episode is the second part interview with Munoz Paparai, one of the very best and most respected investors in the value investing community. If you haven't listened to the first part interview, I would strongly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 120 first. But for this episode, we can't wait to continue our interview with Manish, and I will kick this off with the first question. So Manish, despite your massive success, you're famous for being very humble and simply calling yourself an investment cloner, meaning you're looking at the investments from other fund managers and you make the best ideas you own if they're within your circle of competence. How do we learn how to clone what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are doing? Well, I think first of all, both Warren and Charlie have been very generous and they've put a lot of stuff in the public domain. I mean, almost everything that they have is in the public domain. The only thing you can glean maybe from some of these meetings is the calibration of what is more important and less important, that sort of thing. But for the most part, almost every insight that they have is in the public domain. There's very little that is going to come out that is going to be, you know, because they're not people who hold back. They're very generous on that front. So I think it boils down to going back to the Swami, which is take a simple idea and take it seriously. So I think that the important thing for people who want to follow in the footsteps of Warren and Charlie is a couple of things. The first is, are you wired for it? Each of us has different wiring in our brains. And by the time we are five years old, the psychological template that we have as humans is not going to change for our whole life. Who we are as people is destined by our genetics and the first five years of life experience. It's very almost impossible that you're going to reprogram that. And so if you're wired to be a high-speed trader, you're not going to be able to take over the Warren and Charlie system and be happy in life. You might be able to do it and be super unhappy, but you wouldn't have a, a great life if you did that. So the first question that investors need to ask themselves is, does the glove fit? And the does the glove fit question is not an easy question because what you have to do is after you read an annual report, you know, you have to ask yourself, hey, you know, I spent two hours reading that. Would I have preferred doing that or watching a Star Wars movie, for example? Which one would I have preferred? And yeah, it's great to watch Star Wars movies also. But the thing is, when you look at your choices of how you spend your time, the question you have to ask is what type of activity gives you the greatest satisfaction and puts you in alignment? You know, what, what puts you in great alignment? And with both Warren and Charlie, they have an intense desire to learn, an intense desire to read, and an intense desire to keep understanding new things, a very intense desire to do all those things. And that has to be part of your five-year-old personality. And if it is part of that, you're on the right path. If you're a guy who doesn't like to read and just wants to talk to people, for example, 
that system's probably not going to work and you're probably not going to be a great investor and such. So I think that it's not for everyone. In fact, I think it's for a sliver of humanity. But for the sliver of humanity, if they were to drill down on Warren and Charlie, they can pick up a bunch of great habits, which can be in alignment with the way their brains are wired anyway. And uh, that would be a truly Lula Palooza effect at that point. You know, Manish, I have a question going off of, you were talking about how Charlie and Warren have put so much into the public domain, which, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, especially when you look at all of his shareholders' letters and you go back and read it. It's amazing what he shares through all the years. One of the things that I guess I'm not convinced on, (laughs) and I'm curious just to hear your thoughts, I feel like they understand credit cycles a lot better than what they discuss at the shareholders meetings and in public. I think if I was going to guess, like you get them behind closed doors, I think that they really understand credit cycles a lot better than what people let on. And I guess their understanding of macro is much more profound than what people think. So like we look at their balance sheet right now at Berkshire Hathaway, it's $70 billion they're sitting on cash. And for me, I can't help but think that when they're sitting on such a large amount of cash and you go back and you look at any credit cycle before it's unraveled itself, they've always been sitting on a very good size position of cash in order to buy things back at fantastic prices. I guess I'm curious what your opinions are on it personally. Then I'm curious if you'd ever heard them discuss anything on this issue. Yeah, actually, I've had some detailed conversations actually with Charlie specifically on this. Now, I can't go into a lot of detail because it touches on things that I don't think I want to talk about publicly and I don't think he'd want me to talk about publicly. But I can tell you this, that what you see is what you get. So Charlie and Warren have a very simple system. And the simple system is they are not trying to hoard cash. That is not part of the system. Their system is if an opportunity shows up and that opportunity makes sense, they will put cash to work. They are not going to be particularly concerned if 9-11 happens the next day or the Fed's at zero or what's going to happen in the next 10 years. They truly run their affairs with the understanding that you really have to understand the business and you have to invest based on the understanding of the business. I mean, if you analyze Warren's purchase of Burlington Northern, the railroad, I think he gleaned some insights into railroads that were not at all understood by Joe Public, not even understood by railroad analysts. I think he understood a number of things about the irreplicable nature of that infrastructure, the fact that all these bridges and underpasses in the U.S. had been redone to allow double-decker trains over a long period of time, the fact that labor relations had changed, the fact that trains had become more efficient, and the fact that versus trucking, they were you know many times more efficient in moving a ton of freight and so on. So there were a number of Dula-Palooza effects that came into Burlington Northern decision, just like the Coca-Cola decision. And they were so overwhelmingly in his favor in terms of the intrinsic value of the business being so much higher than where it was, that quite frankly, it didn't matter that much what happened in the next few years to the economy. And if you look at the Burlington Northern value today, it may be four times what they paid for it, three or four times what they paid for it. And how could you have such a wide mispricing on such a large asset? 
So the area that they spend their time on is exactly that, which is figure out the business. I mean, precision cast parts, precision cast parts, they have to figure out the business. And Warren did mention that if interest rates were higher, they may not have offered as much money. So precision cast part was one of those that they were sitting on the edge, right? Right on the edge of the precipice of whether to go or no go, if you will. But, you know, they loved the manager and they went for it because of the manager. And the manager was a huge part of the equation. And so I truly believe that they understand a lot of things about macro. But I can, from my reading, everything in the public domain and with whatever, you know, private interaction, I'd be maybe willing to make a pretty sizable bet that micro trumps macro for Warren and Charlie in a very major way. They are looking to buy businesses well below the intrinsic value where those businesses will have staying power for decades because they have lots of capital. They can't go sloshing in and out of different things. They have staying power for decades and they will deliver good returns for decades. And then the rest of it is just noise. They don't care about the rest. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, 
How to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments. How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. The thing, like when I look at the current U.S. market, you know, the P.E., if we were using a Schiller P.E., it might be priced at a 4% right now. And if you look at a 10-year treasury, I mean, it's what, 2.6 now? It, I know it's come up a lot in the last you know, little bit of time. But he's not investing in just the S&P 500 at that, call it 4% return. He's deciding to sit on a tremendous amount of cash. And I guess this is the magic question is, is where is he drawing that threshold of I have to have an 8% return or a 9% return that I'm expecting to get in order for me to employ that cash and not go after a measly 4% return. I, I guess that's the thing that I just constantly think of. Where are they drawing that threshold? How are they making that determination that I'm going to value liquidity over a 4% return if you were going to take the S&P 500? Yeah. And I think the way they're making those decisions is they want the decision to be a no-brainer. So what they are looking to do is, I don't think they are sweating the details on the S&P versus the 10-year treasury and all those sorts of things. I don't think that's really the driver. What they're looking for is, can they land an exceptional asset in the hands of an exceptional manager with a moat that is getting deeper by the day? That is the key. Those are the factors that matter more than anything else. I mean, if you look at the Coke purchase from 1988 to 2016, how many economic cycles have we had? How many Fed, you know, loosening and tightening cycles have we had? All of that is irrelevant. You know, it's the business and what the business does that trumps everything else. So I think investors basically should take them at face value. I think investors are just doing themselves a huge favor if you just eliminate any macro thoughts from their brains, I mean, it is hard enough to figure out the future of a business. Don't try to figure out the future of the world. Okay. And don't try to figure out the future of a country. Just try to figure out the future of a business. That is hard enough. Don't go beyond that. So speaking of micro and Warren Buffett, one thing that comes to mind is Berkshire Hathaway's new holdings of four airline companies. And I think some people definitely were highly surprised by this since Buffett several times has warned about the industry and he even called them a death trap for investors. Now, the positions were somewhat small and given the size of them, it's probably performed by Ted and Todd, his portfolio managers. But the interesting thing about this is that based on the enterprise multiple, the companies actually looked very attractive before Berkshire scooped them up. So my question is basically twofold here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the airline specifically, and also how much emphasis you put on valuation metrics like the enterprise multiple for tricky industries like the airline business. Yeah, so you know, actually the airline investment is a really good example of how Warren only selects the manager and does not interfere with what they do. So I'll get to airlines in a second, but there's a story I remember about many years back, Geico did not accept the American Express card. And, you know, Berkshire had a large position in Amex 
And so the Amex CEO, I forget it was Ken Chernow or Harvey Golub, called Warren and said, hey, Warren, you know, I tried calling the CEO of Geico and he won't even return my call. Can you ask him to just take my call? Not to accept Amex, just take my call. And Warren told him that I can't do that. He said, the reason I can't do that is because if I call the Geico CEO and say, hey, take the Amex CEO's call, he's going to read more than that into that sentence. (laughs) And he's going to think that there's a mandate of some kind to maybe accept the Amex guy. And he says, whatever I feel about whether Geico should accept Amex or not is irrelevant. That decision rests with the CEO of Geico. So he told the Amex CEO, keep calling and be a pest and pound him every day, but do not ever utter my name. You're on your own and all the best. And I hope you make the sale. So the Todd and Ted relationship with Warren is one where Warren is not going to tell them, do this and don't do this. Now, clearly, Todd and Ted are very smart people. It's clearly one of them who bought this. I would guess it's Ted because he's had some history in the past of making airline investments. So I think if you go look in uh, Peninsula and such, he's done some things with airlines. I think that Ted is very well aware of his boss's extreme hatred for airlines, but he also understands his boss has given him a mandate to deliver returns without taking ridiculous risks, right? And so the good news is he's exercised his freedoms and such and that, which is which is great. Now, why did he do that? Well, you know, I think that what happened is I think the airline situation is similar to the railroad situation. Basically, you have an industry which has really bad economics. You know, your dumbest competitor sets your price. And you have a duopoly from where you need to buy your airplanes and your workforce is unionized and you're selling a commodity, you know, on all fronts, your host. And then, you know, you have no control over fuel prices, you know, so uh, something like one third of your cost or your operating expenses is out of your control. What a great business to be in. But the thing is that one by one, many of these things are no longer true. So, for example, I don't think we are going to see high fuel prices for any sustained period of time, maybe ever. And the reason is because the United States is a swing producer. And the United States was not a swing producer before. And the United States production cannot be controlled because it is 10,000 independent entrepreneurs making those decisions. It's not Saudi Arabia making those decisions. You know, plus on top of that, we have a interior secretary whose three most beloved words are drill, baby, drill. So we have an EPA where the head of the EPA wants to abolish the EPA. We have the head of the energy department coming in who wants to abolish the energy department. So the United States is going to take the shackles off the frackers in a very major way. And even the technology that existed for fracking three years ago versus today is night and day. I mean, just the other day I was reading that Chesapeake did some well, which went two miles first time ever. And then the horizontal runs were huge. And I mean, on a number of fronts, it broke all kinds of records and it's going to drop their, you know, per barrel cost very significantly. And that trajectory is going to keep continuing. In fact, if oil went to 75 or 100, 
you would see far more innovation come in into the fracking area. So I, I think that it's a safe bet that for any sustained period of time, unless we had weird things going on, like you shut down the Strait of Hormuz or something, we are not going to see high oil prices. So that takes away one big, huge monkey that is on the back of the airlines. And the second is that it used to be a brutally competitive industry with more than a dozen players. And they've all kind of merged with each other. And we're left with, you know, five or six players of any meaningful size in the US. And the top three or four, in fact, have somewhat oligopolistic positions. So, for example, if, you know, when you have hubs in places like Dallas Fort Worth, as, as American does, then if your travel takes you around that area, American has pricing power because of those hubs and gates. So just like United has power in Newark and Southwest has power at Las Vegas and so on and number of California airports. So the different pieces are getting to the point where there is rationality and these airlines have all been through such a bloodbath in the past that the CEOs of almost all of the major airlines now have seen the movie before and are not interested in going there again. And so they are not focused on market share. They're focused on profits. And at the core, they have tailwinds because air travel is growing. I mean, I don't know if you've been on a flight lately, but there are no empty seats. I mean, their load factors are through the roof. The fares aren't really that cheap, even though fuel prices are cheap. So I think that these guys are in great shape and many of those things are unlikely to change for a while. Monish, I know that you recently took a position in Southwest Airlines. Bersia did that too, by the way. Could you explain to us why you recently decided to invest in Southwest and not in, say, Delta, American, United, or any of the other airlines? First, I mean, I, I looked at all the airlines and Southwest is an extremely unusual company. It is like no other airline company that I know of. I mean, I think that for the longest time, if you had put up the Berkshire Hathaway stock chart next to the Southwest stock chart, the stock performance blew it away. I mean, this was an airline operating in environments where fuel went up and fuel went down and everything in between, and they still blew out Berkshire Hathaway. I have a person who was one of my first employees in one of my first businesses, TransTech, and he came to work for me 25 years ago. And very talented IT person. Obviously, he's become a very senior guy. And he was very senior employee at United for a while. And now he's an independent consultant. So for a few years, he was flying in and out of Southwest headquarters because he was working on an IT project for them because they're going through a lot of system changes. And, you know, the, my conversations with him were not related to the investment. I've had conversations with him about Southwest just, you know, shooting the breeze for several years. But just to give you some examples of what he, he said that it's the only place where he would go into a meeting with a bunch of Southwest employees. And he's one of the only people who's not a Southwest employees. And before the meeting started, everyone would hug him. Okay. They all have hugs and then they'd get down to business. Right. And the ticker of Southwest is love. And he said, Monish at United, no one ever hugged me. And at no other business that he ever worked at did anyone give hugs. So Southwest has an extremely unusual culture. If you walk into their headquarters, they do not allow any type of art on their walls. The only thing you can put up on walls 
are pictures of friends and family. And I think they've given license for any employee to take any picture of their friends and family and put it anywhere in the headquarters that they want to. And so when you walk in there, it's like a place like no other place you've seen. And the way Southwest hires its people, I already told you that humans are hard-coded at the age of five. You are not going to change humans after the age of five. All you can do is try to make sure you bring in the right humans. And so what Southwest does is in their hiring processes, they are far more concerned with the psychological makeup of the person than the capabilities of the person. They believe they can teach capabilities, but they cannot change the psychology. So they're looking for people who have a certain psych makeup. And have you flown Southwest lately? Yeah, I have. You know, they have that Baltimore, big, huge hub at Baltimore, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't, you can't avoid them. You, you know, <laughs> when you die and go to heaven, you're going to change planes in Baltimore. <laughs> and so you have that huge Southwest hub in Baltimore and you're going to use that. But when you go on a Southwest aircraft, you know, so here's how I feel. I go on a United aircraft or an American aircraft and I'm in business class and it's fine. I go on a Southwest aircraft and I'm in coach and I usually find I'm happier. I'm in a happier state of mind in coach in Southwest versus business on American. And why is that? I don't know why is that. I still haven't figured out. I, I keep asking myself the question, why do I feel happy being in Southwest? And I don't know exactly why, but the thing is, it's a happy place. Yeah. You know, they've made that narrow tube a very happy place. And why is it a happy place? Because they've hired a certain type of people and they've given them a lot of flexibility. The other airlines have tried repeatedly. They've tried repeatedly to clone Southwest. So United set up TED and they shut it down. Delta set up Song and they shut it down. All these guys would do, they thought, oh, the formula is you have one airplane, 737. You fly them point to point. And you fly the airplane nonstop and the time between takeoffs and landings is 25 minutes or something. They cloned all of that. They still couldn't make it work because the thing that is the hardest to clone and the thing that none of the airlines can ever clone about Southwest is the culture. American can try as hard as it wants. It can never clone the culture in a hundred years. United can never clone the culture. Delta can never clone the culture. They've tried and fallen flat. So, you know, if you read, there's a book called Nuts, which is a biography on Herb Kelleher and on Southwest. There's a number of books on Southwest, a number of HBS cases on Southwest. I think if you just drill down on the company, this is a very unusual company. This is the company with a very happy workforce. This is a company which has a very unique culture. This is a company where twice a month, the management loads bags on airplanes, on and on. I mean. It had a level five leader, Herb Kelleher, who's left the scene a long time ago. And even though he's left the scene, the culture has not changed at all. Just like Berkshire's culture, you know, even 20 years after Warren is gone, the culture will be intact. So did I answer your question on Southwest? Definitely, definitely. And I'm really happy that you also brought in the term level five leader, because that was actually something that we just covered on the podcast. So Very, very important, also in continuation of talking about leadership, management, and, and what's important. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. You know, we all learn the most from our blunders and our mistakes. And so the people on Twitter were really curious what you would say was one of your biggest, it can be an investing mistake, life lesson, it doesn't matter, however you want to take this. But what would you say is one of your biggest learning lessons from a mistake that you've made? Well, you know, first of all, mistakes are a blessing. Adversity is a blessing. 
you know, I truly believe in what Marcus Aurelius says that to have misfortune and prevail is good fortune. And uh, so if we were really wise, we would hope and pray for lots of misfortune. Because when I look back, when I look back on my, on my life and I look back on some of the critical points, what I've found is that the points at which I took a leg down were the points of greatest learning. We don't learn when we do well because there's nothing to learn. You know, things are great. And so I think that from my vantage point, I think mistakes are wonderful because mistakes are great teachers. And I find myself making mistakes all the time. And after I, like I, I have a few mistakes I made even in the last few years. And I look at those and say, how dumb were you to make these mistakes? But I also know that I will not make those mistakes again. And that is a tremendous advantage to basically reduce the error rate, if you will, as you go on in life. So I think when you look at the, when I think about the, I haven't thought about in terms of the greatest mistake, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I had happened just before a fund started, you know, the dot-com boom was on in a big way. And I thought I'd found a way to ride the wave, if you will, upside without downside. It was like some of the incubators that were coming up at the time. And I'd raised about, I think, about $4 million or so in capital for that. And about $2.2 million of that was my own money. And the entire amount went to zero. Mm. You know, and so the investors, the outside investors who had put in money, all saw it go to zero. And I saw it go to zero. So we lost that $4 million. We felt terrible about it. I felt terrible about the money loss of these people who had put in money were some of the nearest and dearest people to me. You know, they were longtime friends and family and so on. But there was a lot of success that came to Pabrai funds in the next several years that would not have come if that mistake had not happened. So if I look at absolute dollars, there was more than a hundred million, couple of hundred million made that wouldn't have been made if that 4 million hadn't been lost. Now, the same people didn't make that. So there's an asymmetry there. But I couldn't see it then. I, I just felt terrible about it at that time. And a few years later, I look back and I say, wow, that was really good. That was a good thing for me to get hit that hard at that time. Because, you know, the lessons don't sink in very well if they are other people's mistakes. It's unfortunate. And this is one of Munger's and Buffett's great strengths is they actually are really good at learning from others' mistakes. And so they try to avoid most of them. I'm not as good at it. I have to do them on my own uh, more than I'd like. I hope I get better at learning from other people's mistakes because it's so much cheaper. So I would say that clearly the 99 timeframe, we had that mistake, 99, 2000. Then we've had, we've had others in the financial crisis. We had a company, Delta Financial, that went bankrupt. We had Horsehead Holdings that went bankrupt earlier this year. Very tough things because that was $100 million that we, I mean, we had invested 70 and it had gone up to more than 100. And in the end, it was zero. And tough things to deal with and tough lessons. But the good news is that we live and learn. And my investors have been very gracious for the most part about, about these things. And I think we will do better in the future as a result of the mistakes. Absolutely. I truly believe that Buffett's quote, you know, rule number one, 
don't lose money, rule number two, don't forget rule number one. You know, going back to your question about him be keeping cash, him keeping cash is because of that quote. Yeah. It's not for macro. What they want to do is they want to make sure bets or as close to sure bets as you can get and keep their error rate down. And so that's really what is driving the cash more than anything else. Very, very interesting. So Manish, the last question I'd like to ask you, that's about a really good resource for our listeners out there. And if you could endorse up to three investing books, not including Graham's books and not including Buffett's shareholder letters, <laughs> which uh, I can see that you're smiling now because that was probably what popped into your mind right away. The, the reason I was smiling is because you left me a wide opening, <laughs> which was great because yeah. you didn't mention poor Charlie's almanac. And so first of all, I would say that if you're excluding the Graham and, ba- and Buffett books, I would say poor Charlie's almanac is a book that I try to reread every year. And every year when I reread it, I find brand new things that I can swear were never in the book before. Somebody just put them in there. And so I pick up more insights and, you know, just his speech, the psychology of human misjudgment, that speech, every time I read it, I pick up more insights. So I would say that that one book, in my opinion, is better than a college degree. I think if someone just imbibed that book and read and reread it a few times, you would do quite well. You know, the other insight that I've I've learned is that business autobiographies are really good. I mean, if you read, you know, Sam Walton's Made in America, for example, I mean, I think the business autobiographies are really good because they really help you get in the mind of these phenomenal entrepreneurs and such. So if you can read some of those, you know, there's one that was written by Harvey Firestone a long time ago. It's a book that was recommended by Peter Kaufman. It's in Poor Charlie's Almanac. I think it's Men and Rubber or something along those lines. It's a phenomenal book. And uh, that was written, I don't know, close to 90 years ago or something. And I think those insights are very valuable today. So I think that if you're interested in airlines, you know, studying Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, Southwest and such is going to be really, really helpful in helping you figure things out. And you don't need too many of these insights to do well. I think the thing is that just a couple of these insights can be enough to give you a significant tailwind on the portfolio. All right, Monish, I know I speak for our entire audience when we just say thank you for coming on the show. Your insights, just amazing. It's just so much fun to talk to you too. You're so easy to talk to. But if people want to learn more about you and they want to uh, go to your website or go to your Twitter feed, if they want to see your book, The Dondo Investor or whatever, where is the best place for them to find you on the internet? Yeah, well, uh, so first of all, it's been a pleasure. I think both of you do a great job, great service to the community. And I wanted to say that, you know, I was living under a rock for a long time and I had never been on Twitter. I didn't even understand Twitter. But then when we got a Twitter president, I decided that, you know, if it can elect a president of these great United States, that I should kind of go on to Twitter land. And so very recently, in the last few weeks, I set up a Twitter account and actually it surprised me. I got uh, very quickly more than 5,000 followers, which is great. And I'm having a lot of fun because I set up a blog recently called Chai with Pabrai. So anytime you want to have a good cup of tea, you know, just come to the blog and that'd be great. 
You know what I like about your Twitter feed is so many people that are really accomplished like yourself, they stand up a Twitter account, but it's not them that you're like interacting with. It's some person that they hired or whatever. So huge kudos to you, Mr. Pobri, because I know I've had a couple interactions with you. And just so our audience knows, go on Twitter and follow Monish because he will respond to some of the tweets that you send him. And it's just an amazing opportunity. All right. Good stuff, guys. This was all that we had for this week's episode on the Investors Podcast. We'll see you each other again next week with a new episode. Thanks for listening to the Investors Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to the Investors Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.